Well, um, today we're going to do the last portion of the Churchman series. And uh, we've had a time in this kind of our spring semester to look really through uh, this, what it means to uh, be a servant in God's household, what the qualifications of a deacon is, uh, and even the role and the duties of the elder. We're going to look at that and examine that today. Uh, but last time we uh, looked at this in part one of the elders, uh, we saw uh, some definitions. We looked at both Old and New Testament. I wanted to give you a brief summary before we started our time together in 1 Timothy 3, which you can begin just turning there, 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we'll spend our time. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. But um, and when we think back about the last time we got together, we saw those three terms uh, that you see interchangeably throughout the New Testament. Uh, presbyteros, episkopos, and poimen. Uh, when we talked about that word presbyteros, it really uh, was what they put as the elder, uh, the one who was the aged man of wisdom. He had maturity, he had experience, uh, he was a man of dignity. People could submit to his authority because of the lifestyle that he led, the wisdom that he had. It was uh, tested over time, and that was what was required in order to fulfill that office. And that's that presbyteros. It really is who the elder is, that man of integrity. And then the episkopos, uh, we saw that. It really is what the elder does. It speaks to kind of his oversight. Uh, it really is where that term comes from. He, he has great oversight, uh, not only to the watchful eye, and, but he has great insights to the truth. He has a clear view, and he's on the wall of the hearts of God's people in the local assembly. And that was what the Episcopos did. He, he oversaw the ministry. He oversaw the lives. He oversaw the teaching. Uh, this was the elder functioning in the life of the New Testament, the early church. And then that third term, poimain. Uh, poimain, when you get that, that's pastors, where we derive that, as we see that translated throughout the New Testament. But it's how the elder ministers. It really speaks to the shepherding aspect of his life. Uh, he's a shepherd. He shepherds the flock of God by teaching scripture. Some people say, well, the only role that a shepherd does, he goes out and ministers to people and care in their home. But shepherding the flock is equivalent to teaching them truth. That's what you do. That's what Jesus commanded his apostles. He said, look, teach them, tend the lambs, feed the sheep. Feeding is essential. And so uh, that teaching scripture, in addition to tending the, uh, to the care of God's people, is essential for that role. And that's where we get that definition uh, well, this morning, we're going to see how the Bible describes elders. We've seen the, uh, the definitions. We're going to see how they describe them. Uh, but when you start thinking about how you would describe an elder, what are some of the things that would come to mind? That's, uh, I want you to state those, but uh, what is it that is usually on the priority? When you say, well, let me kind of give a description of an elder. And a lot of people, they automatically go to lead, 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 lead. Uh, people think about how can the man lead, you know, and there's all kinds of uh, books in the Christian bookstores, uh, whether it's online, it's out on the shelves there. Uh, they talk about leadership and they give all these principles. There's one book said, oh, you want to be an elder? These are 25 leadership principles on elder. And it's good and dandy, but really didn't see a lot of them derive from what scripture would have. It really was how to uh, gain a following, how to, you know, really be influential in people's lives and how to uh, great raise up a church of many people and to do programs and how to make sure that they're precise in, their, in the program of the church. And so 
25 of these characteristics later, and you can't really see where the scriptures were speaking into that. But that's sometimes how people think when they look at the office of elder. They think about lead, 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 lead. Well, you know, it's nothing wrong with leadership because, uh, as we mentioned in the past, uh, the elder really is, is one who serves by leading, uh, whereas the deacon, he leads by serving. So it's nothing wrong with leadership. But when you look at this passage here in 1 Timothy 3 that we're going to examine today, and even Titus 1, uh, it's clear that it's looking at the man's life, not just on leadership, but let's look at his life because character matters. Character, what the man is about. Uh, how do people perceive him? Uh, what does it look like when they're around him? Can they follow him? Uh, not just because he's such a dynamic leader, but because his life clearly models Jesus Christ. They can imitate him, and as they imitate him, they become more like Christ. That's what Paul is helping us to see as he's giving a description of what this elder is, what he does. Uh, you know, both the emphasis in this passage is clear that a man's life, and, and you know, God is all about the means, right? He's, he's not just in the end result. He's all about the means. He wants the process of his church growing in health and vitality and, and the bride of Christ being made more blameless. He doesn't want to just get there automatically. He's about that means in the process. And what he does, he has good and godly men. You see, because a great leader can draw a crowd, uh, but a godly life can make a disciple of, of Jesus Christ. You know, great leaders can cause others to imitate them, but a godly one causes them to imitate Christ. That's what this is about. And this is what we'll see in this passage. I like the way MacArthur, he talked about the role of the elder, and not only his Bible as well as his life, but he said the leaders you know, seek to influence people to achieve their objectives, but that influence has a direct result of teaching and example. So what a man is will influence his followers to be more committed to what he says. He says the teaching sets the nails in the mind, but the example is the hammer that drives them deep in the heart. That's what happens. It's not only that what he teaches, it's his life that helps to drive those nails of truth into people's hearts. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, just character matters, and that's what we're going to see. So let's look here uh, this morning uh, through the description of the elder. If you're there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, uh, you'll see this description. It says, uh, it is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. And he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and in the snare of the devil. It's, uh, he starts out by sta stating that it's a, this is a trustworthy statement. It's a trustworthy statement, similar to how Jesus in the Gospels, when he was talking to his disciples, he would say, verily, verily, truly, truly. He would say it even beforehand. It was almost as if you could just say amen before Jesus started talking. And that's what you could do with this phrase. He said, this is a trustworthy statement. And what is that statement? He says, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires. 
That if, it's a first class conditional. It means since. It's assuming when this man uh, aspires, it really is saying that he's reaching for it. He's not letting that office come to him and just like, ah, oh, it'll just happen passively. He's actually reaching for it. He has a desire, a heart's desire for the office of overseer. And he doesn't do it with bad motivations. Uh, this, this man is, is not doing it for power. He's not doing it because of uh, prideful lust. He's, he's doing it not because he's thinking, uh, you know, some men, they're qualified, but then they say, well, I can't do this because uh, they have this super elder in mind as opposed to a scriptural elder. And they, they psych themselves out of that. He says, no, those motives are not right. They're not misguided. They're ultimately right for the glory of Christ, for a man to actually want to grab hold of this office uh, because he knows that the Lord will grab hold of him and sanctify him in the process as he seeks to be a sanctifying instrument in the church. Uh, you know, but you talk about aspiration. And sadly, even in the church, this term aspire can get lost. There's some men that come to, to God's house and they just desire to, to have comfort. They're like, man, I want to come in the ministry that's comfortable and convenient. They'll choose to go to a healthy church just so that they can consume everything and the good fruit that God produces and all that. But then they say, man, I, I really don't want to do anything but bring my family and let everybody else pour into to me and help me to be a better person and not really hold me accountable to truth. That's kind of, in some cases, a convenient, comfortable Christianity. But Paul is saying, it's a true statement. This man aspires to this office. He says, guess what? It's a fine work that he desires to do. In other versions, they say it's a noble task. You know why that task is so noble? It is because of who it imitates. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He says, I'm the chief shepherd, and the men that will fulfill this office are under shepherds that will imitate his ways among his people. He says, I'm in the heavens and ruling and reigning over all things, but I've put under shepherds in my church to rule and to exercise and dispense my authority among those whom I've drawn to myself. That's why it's such a noble task. And guess what? There's no other assignment. There's no other vocation. There's no other task on this earth that's greater than the office of the elder. Even more important than the president of the United States is the office of the elder. More important than the rule of parliament in any other kingdom on this earth, because guess what? They will have a conclusion. But these men are serving in a kingdom that has no end. It's eternal. The work that that elder invests in have eternal ramifications. There's no other highest office. I would encourage you, grab hold of that. Grab hold of that. Seek to, to have those characteristics that we're going to see, these qualifications of this task of an elder. But that's what Paul is even establishing before he goes in. And then he just goes through a list of these biblical qualifications. And I'll say this, as I mentioned in the prayer, and I'll say it now, this is good for you to look and, and examine the life of elders that are currently in, the, in this uh, local assembly, and even elders that you know around the community and other churches. But at the same time, uh, don't be so quick to just look at the elders. I want you to examine your own heart. These qualifications here are, are, are really qualifications that should be true of, of each believer to a certain degree. Now, obviously, we have the pronounced teaching that is there. But at the end of the day, this is something that God would like to see. You've seen it all throughout. There are various commands that you can search all throughout Scripture uh, that will have these characteristics. 
But these are qualifications that are non-negotiable for the man who serves in the office of elder. And he starts there by saying he must be above reproach. Above reproach. This, this term really means that you're not able to hold any area of his life, grab a hold of it. No sinful area hanging out that a person can grab and make an arrest of any charges. So you can't hold him down. Couldn't make an arrest. Can't get him. Can't find any area of his life that would violate scripture, that he has a pattern of living that you can hold him to. You know, in Titus 1.6, the same word is used, and it's, it's really, it's, he's unreprovable. You can't really go in and say, man, I'm going to re- give him re- rebuke in these specific areas that are glaring in his life. Now, this doesn't mean that the man has to be perfect, because if that was the case, Paul could have used teleos, right? He could have used that, there's a term for being perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. He didn't say that that's a qualification for this man, but he did say he needs to be above reproach. And no one can really look in his life and see, uh, it's clearly obvious, he needs to have rebuke and correction in these particular areas. And that's what it means. You you think about that. No one should be able to have handles on his life. You should look at this and examine your own life. Because, see, it, it isn't just a big handle that happens. Usually it's just little handles that get unattended over time. Little bitty things that you say, oh, I, I'm okay. I can, I can deal with that. It's okay. It's just small. Those small things turn into big things. And before you know it, those big things are what causes you to be disqualified from any area of leadership. But that's the case of the elder. He shouldn't have that. Could anyone in our church identify any part of your life right now that if it was announced on a Sunday morning, it would bring shame? Is there any area of your life right now? And people even talked about it. In the collective life group, not just mutual ministry, but everybody, would it bring shame to you? Those are the things you need to tend to. Again, these are qualifications that we need to be examining our life on. Would people who are outside of the community be shocked if your name ever went up before the, as, a, as an elder of a church? Would it gasp? Would they go, oh, like that person? They trying to put him as an elder? Are you serious? And what would be their issue? Those are the kind of things that you've got to think through, above reproach. The other one, he says, a husband of one wife. You know, this qualification, it really is the same as the deacon in that list. But I want to share how it's been wrongly interpreted. Some say that you've got to be married. Well, it doesn't say that, that a man must be married. And if that was the case, the man writing the letter would be disqualified. Uh, Paul would be in that list. Uh, the other one, uh, people say that he's only got to be married once, because you do that that second time, he's, he's disqualified. It doesn't mean that uh, because ultimately you see that uh, there were moments in which divorce was biblical. Uh, the man would be set free to serve in this office if that was the case. He even makes uh, moments and uh, God gives allowances for a biblical divorce. And some people, you know, even the celibacy, it came about uh, some of their early times after the church was established. They said they shouldn't be married at all. And you see the decline. They went from all of these uh, erroneous interpretations of this text to the the asceticism practices coupled with the celibacy in the Roman Catholic Church made it seem as if he had to be an unmarried man in in order to be ordained in the office of the episcopate. Uh, But that's not what Paul is saying. And he didn't even say this when he was speaking about singleness in 1 Corinthians 7. He didn't say that this must take place. Uh, But literally this Greek term, this phrase, it means it's a one-woman man. It's a one-woman man. Or you can say a a one-wife husband. But in the end, it's a, it's a man who has singularity of focus on his bride, if he's married. It speaks to his fidelity in his marital vows. The covenant that he took in marriage, he takes that serious and he doesn't violate it with his eyes, with his words, or his actions. He has one 
uh, affection when it comes down to the intimacy on this earth, and that is with his wife. It speaks to sex. Uh, all of that is included as well. Um, you know, and it must be a man. This, it says a, a one woman, man. It doesn't say just a person that is married. He could have put that language in there, but he made it very clear that this is a man that's to hold that office. And even further, he talked about that. He had just come out of the section in 1 Timothy chapter 2 about a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And she's not able to teach or exercise authority over a man. So we wouldn't turn right around this passage and say, now the person that uh, oversees God's church must be a woman or can be a woman. So it's absolutely clear that a woman cannot fulfill this office. Uh, but when you start thinking about this, one woman man, you, even if you're a single guy today, uh, how would you characterize your dating? How would you characterize your relationship with other women? Is it holy? Is it pure? Those are the kind of things you think about if you're single. If you're married, what are your entertainment choices when it comes to uh, view viewing? Uh, are you viewing pornography? Are you viewing things online you shouldn't? There's no way you can be a one-woman man if those things are a part of your life. Or if you're battling with this lust, are you gouging your eye out like Jesus commanded to do in Matthew? Or are you saying, oh, I can kind of give myself a pass today? You've got to be radical with that. That's how you keep that one-woman-man mindset. And that's the type of men that we're raising in this church. That's the type of men that God expects in his household. One-woman-man. That's a necessity, mandatory for the office of the elder. You think about that. Think about how this one aspect has ruined so many men. So many men have fallen from this role because of this one qualification, not being a one-woman man. And you see how much shame it brings upon the church. You hear it all the time. You see it uh, in the news, read about it in the paper, Christian magazines, and the world loves that. They love that. Another, another elder has fallen. Love to see that. Satan enjoys that because it, uh, it allows us to just uh, feel like we're defeated when some of our men that have the highest area of authority in God's church fall. But you need to shore up those loose ends in your life. Think about your devotion to your bride. The other one is this temperate here. Uh, this temperate word, it means it's not mixed with wine. You know, so when the original audience would have heard this, they would have been thinking of a sober-minded person. You know, you think about it, and, you know, some of these, um, in this, it probably metaphorically was speaking of, of somebody who just kind of had more of an alert, watchful, vigilant, clear-headed mindset. You know, he wasn't given into, uh, you know, um, the senses. Um, you know, and you think about this, when it means to be intemperate, having a, a clear-headedness. You know, what are your appetites in life? And, and are they balanced? You know? Is there any place where you're given ex excess to, to, say, food or, 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 you know, anger? Any area that just you give full vent to. He says, no, this person is, is temperate. He's not like the person that's got the, that's mixed with wine. You think about a person that has too much wine, they, uh, they can get very spirited easily. Uh, but that's the wrong spirit with a, with a lowercase s that they can be filled with. But he says, this person can't be that way. Can't be. You got to be temperate. Think about your life in that regard. Prudent is another uh, qualification that you see there. It's prudent. You see, where's temperate is talking more of the restraint on the senses. Prudent restrains the emotions. Uh, the the elder can't be given into his emotions. He's going to have them. He's going to feel anger. He's going to feel disappointment. He's going to feel like 
jealousy for God in some areas of like, man, why could you bring shame in this area? Uh, but he's got to be prudent. He has to tether those emotions to the scripture. Uh, this speaks to the elder, not being one that's making rash decisions, but instead he proceeds with caution. He's got emotions probably just like everybody else, but he says, I'm going to proceed with caution. I'm not just going to blow past this yield sign, you know, this slow down and go full vent. You know, you should be thinking about how this man handles people when they disagree with him. You know, thinking about not only having truth, but how do you communicate that with people that are against that? This is something you should look at on how does he interact on social media? I've seen some men that you would think they're good and godly, and then you look at their social media page and how they're just dropping bombs on people that disagree with them. You know, uh, you want, want so much to win the argument that you lose the soul in evangelism. Like, dude, you just missed an opportunity. That person has no clue about Jesus, and you, you took them by the, by the soul and, and, I mean, just pulverized, pulverized them, you know, with, with Bible. Like that, man, what, how are you? He's got to be prudent. Says, okay. That's a, that's a flawed view of Jesus. Let me help you understand what this is. Uh, or maybe it's biblical uh, view of gender roles, and he sees somebody doing something totally opposite. How does he bring them back? That's what, you see how prudence has to take place? Because he'll be doing that in the life of the church. There are going to be some people that have differing views in Scripture, and he's going to have to be able to not just go, boom, 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 boom. he's going to have to open the Scriptures up and to help them to understand this is what truth is. And we rightly divide it. And let me lay it out for you. And if they argue, guess who they need to be arguing with? Not because of the demeanor and the attitude and the emotions of the elder. They need to be arguing with the scriptures. That's what they need to be taking that argument with. Uh, how do you communicate your convictions with others? Are they filled with emotion, venom even? Are they filled with, with grace and tenderness? Because you know you got the truth. It's been great to see how some elders have interacted with some people that disagree doctrinally. And just saw the tenderness and the grace, uh, this person. And usually when, when someone is having an opinion that's their own and it's not scripture, a lot of times they get worked up and they're heated. They're in the flesh because they got to prove their point. The elder just handled the scriptures gracefully, didn't get upset because he knew at the end of the day he was praying for that person's soul and wanting to give them biblical truth. That's what the role of the elder should be. And that's what you should be doing and practicing in your areas of, of ministry right now. Some of you are life group leaders. Some of you are investing in children's minister where you're leading or your own staff there. You should be thinking about how to be prudent. The other one is respectable. It's another qualification there that you see right in the text. Respectable. Uh, it comes from uh, the Greek word cosmos. Cosmos. You know what that is, right? The world. The world is orderly. You don't just see the ocean uh, waters just flying upon us. You know, obviously you've got a hurricane, those anomalies, tornadoes, and those kind of things. But you see how things are orderly. God has the trees. He has the the birds, he has you feed the animals. The, the, the earth is in an order. The cosmos, the universe, you see all that. God has done that in an orderly fashion. Sun comes up. Moon comes out. I mean, those things are, are, are put together. They run methodically and they're well arranged. And that's the same thing that must be true of this man's life. Uh, the elder's life it can't be out of control. He can't just be a hot mess walking. <laughs> You've seen that. Man, the, he loves the Bible. He loves people. But he is a hot mess walking. Comes out disheveled from his house. I mean, you look at all the areas, and you're like, is anything put in order? Uh, it's, uh, he has to have a nicely arranged life. He's dealing with the souls of, uh, that have been purchased by the blood of Christ. He needs to be a well-ordered man. 
you need to see discipline in his life. A man without discipline can't lead the church. So you think about that for you. Is your life in order? Is your life in order? How is your appearance? You know, I'm not trying to say you, you've got to be right out of a magazine. Uh, but when people see you, do they, do they see you looking in, a, in such a way to where you're not kept up and they're thinking, you're, taking, you're going to take care of my soul? You can't even get dressed this morning pro appropriately. I mean, those are thoughts that people have, but it, it hinders your effectiveness in ministry. But it, it also reflects greater on the character of God. That's really what it is. That's why he puts it there. It's got to be in order. Uh, think about it. You show, to, show up to work on time. Is your life planned in such a way to where you get to your commitments when you need to get there? Or is every meeting you're late? Oh, I'm sorry. Ah, I'm sorry. I'm 10 minutes late. I, I was reading the Bible. You know, try to sanctify your lateness, your tardiness. Uh, that's not the case of the man that's respectable in cosmos, cosmos, and he's orderly in all the things that he does. If people came into your office, is it a mess? If they came into your house, is it a mess? Respectable. That's a characteristic. You see why that's important for the elder. Uh, hospitable. Hospitable. This is really a love for strangers. People think about hospitality and they start thinking about, oh, well, i got to get a good, nice house, and it's got to be at this level, and, you know, we're in the South, so i got to give me a nice little, you know, tea set, China cabinet, and, you know, that's not what he's talking about. It's really a love for strangers is really what that word is. Early days, people, early Christians couldn't just go into hotels when they went and traveled. Hotels were synonymous for uh, prostitution, drinking, all those things. It just was a wrong crowd, and so what they would do is they would find Christians they'd never met before, and they'd stay with them. And the Christians were glad to receive them. It was a, a blessing for them to have someone come to their house that they would have to make extra food for and get drinking and, and, and set a, 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 an extra place at the table and, and even prepare bedding and all of that. That was a joy, and that's what it is for us. You know, really, for us, we really don't have to worry about, you know, we're not trying to replace the Holiday Inn. You know, that's not what, what the Bible is teaching us for today, but it means can your home be an extension of the church? Do you love strangers, love people that you don't know, that you, you hook up with them on a Sunday, talking with them, greeting them, meeting them, and inviting them to your home? That's the open door of the elder's home. It should be that way for our lives. And hospitality, I love the way First Peter 4, when he talks about it, he, he mentions this, and he, he says this is true for all of the Christians. Uh, he says that we should be honoring one another, Loving one another, keep fervent that way. But then he says in, in uh, 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. You know, he tells us what we're to do. That's to be hospitable, love one another, love strangers, invite people. He says, well, while we do it, he says the end of all things is near. You know, you need to be thinking about Christ who has suffered all things and he ceased from sin. So live uh, your rest of your life for the will of God instead of for your flesh. You live for the will of God by opening your home, loving people, loving strangers. Realizing that they're going to stand before the one that will judge the living and the dead. These are all reasons. And he says, why? What do you do? You be hospitable. You be hospitable. And then he even says it in that verse in uh, 1 Peter 4, 9, how to do it. He says, without complaint. <laughs> That's a Greek term, gagusmas. It's an onomatopoeia. You know, they say the word that matches the sound that usually come out of a person's mouth when they're complaining. Gagusmas. That was what happened in, in the ancient days, they'd be like, Gagusmas, I got to go and prepare this food. Gagusmas, I got to go and make another bed. But Gagusmas, I got to go get this, this, this extra wine. I mean, it was just all those things. They were complaining about it. But he says that should be true of us. There should be no Gagusmas taking place when you got to open your home and care for someone else and extend yourself. 
You could be thinking about, man, I could put a watch in the playoffs. I could have relaxed on my couch. I could have done all these things. I could have gone and played golf, whatever it is you do. But you invest in your life in the strangers because you want to advance the kingdom of heaven. That's what the elder does. He's hospitable. He's thinking about that, thinking of others. He's thinking of people that he doesn't know. He wants to get not only to know them, but wants them to know Christ. And you think about it, that's what Jesus Christ did to us. You were removed. You were far off. You were aliens. You were strangers, and Christ brought you near. And that's what this elder's aspect of his life need to be. He's wanting to, uh, to think about those. Uh, you know, for your case, are you meeting people on a Sunday morning? Those are ideal times. So there are some people coming. I can guarantee you, they're, they're sitting in the back. I can show you, point the section where they're sitting. And many of them come without a Bible every Sunday. They just don't know. And they don't even have a clue. They're just saying, man, somebody told me to come. But they're hearing the word. Praise God, they're coming. You can meet them, interact with them, determine if uh, their understanding of Christ, take a genuine interest in them. Even open your home to those in the church and those who are visiting. And that's the hospitality, uh, hospitable. Next characteristic, he says, able to teach. This man it really has the idea of he's a skillful in his teaching ability. And he's not just teaching for the sake of teaching. He's teaching divine truth. The elder must have the ability to clearly communicate the truth of the scripture. You think about why that's important. The church is the pillar and the support of what? The pillar and the support of what? Truth. Of the truth. The church holds that up. And this elder must be able to rightly divide the word of God. He's to proclaim the truth and also protect the doctrine from error. This true, sound doctrine. And this is the qualification that distinguishes the elder from the deacon. And all throughout these epistles, you see that. Paul is, is helping Timothy uh, to understand the priority of the word. He says, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. That's 1 Timothy 1.3. 3.15, I just mentioned, the pillar and the support of the truth. And, and chapter 4, verse 6 of the same letter, point out these things, brethren, about what it means about marriage and uh, certain foods and all those things. He says, do that according to sound doctrine, which you've been following. Verse uh, chapter 411, prescribe and teach these things. Give public uh, attention to reading of the scripture, exhortation and teaching. Uh, he says you need to preach the word in season and when else? Out of season. That's what the man does. He has to have a, a grasp of doctrine and theology, and he needs to be able to communicate it effectively to edify and build up the sheep. That's what they do. They, they, they understand how to, to worship God greater when the word is taught with clarity. They understand how to, uh, to work out their salvation and to be more sanctified from this earth as the word of God is proclaimed. Conviction of sin occurs when the word of God is accurately taught. It, it, it assaults the heart. It says, oh my goodness, I shouldn't be doing these things that offend God. I mean, all of that happens. And that's what God is using as this elder as his mouthpiece. But he has to do it all according to the word. As Paul mentioned, rightly dividing, rightly handling the word of truth. As a pastor named Mark Lauterbach, and he, he wrote in an article, he says, an elder with no Bible is really an elder with no authority. He says, you need to know your Bible. You don't have authority just to go out and make all these decisions. You need to have Bible open when you're making them. And that man that's able to teach, he's looking in the scriptures and he's proclaiming those things. He's leading out of that. And I would even ask you now, are you taking advantage of teaching opportunities that come your way? Are you capable of teaching? When you proclaim truth and teach, do, are other believers edified in that process? Uh, do you disciple men in the truth? Do you have a regular interaction where you're helping another man see truth so he can live it out? These are qualifications that you don't want to wait 
one day and say, well, Lord, I think I'm ready. Be doing that right now in your life. The people grow. Are you growing in your theology? And what are you doing? What resources are you looking at? But the elder must be able to teach because of the weight of the word and its significance in the life of the believer. Another one, it says, not addicted to much wine. You know, uh, Bobby taught on this, so I won't go in, in depth uh, when he mentioned uh, this section in the elder portion or the deacon portion. Uh, but, you know, when we see that term, the only thing I want to point out is that we see that not addicted to wine and we think addiction and we're like, oh, this must be the person that gets sloppy drunk. You know, they can't take two or three steps in one direction. And, you know, you can't live without getting drunk. Uh, but really, it's a little bit more subtle in the original language. It means just a person that's beside the wine. He's just beside it. He, he lingers around with a cup. It didn't say he's the sloppy drunk man, but it's this guy that just has, he just likes drinking. He likes it. Because, you know, that's all it takes is a person that just kind of, he just likes drinking, just likes to be around it. Before you know it, it desensitizes him. Before you know it, he can make decisions out of that. This person lingers around the cup. He's beside the wine. Aristotle, as he used this term in his writing, he said is the man who's just tipsy. He's not sloppy drunk, he's just tipsy. He's just got that much in him that could cause him to, to, to make decisions that aren't sober-minded, that aren't thinking about the consequences, that aren't thinking about his standing before the Lord and even his influence before others, and cause people to stumble. I've heard about it. Uh, there's some people that were in a church, it was in a different state, and they were like, oh yeah, our pastor, he's good with alcohol. And I was like, wow, like he's good with it. And when they were saying he's good with it, you know what they meant. Like if he's good with a little bit, guess how much I can have. If he get one, I can get a keg. I mean, that's just, that's just kind of how it goes. People think that way. Oh, the leader, oh, he's good. I can go take this thing and run with it. Um, and, and that's the mindset. But God is saying he's got to be uh, one that's not known to linger around the cup. Uh, clearly, uh, an elder can't lead effectively while he's tipsy or having an affinity for strong drink all the time. But just, you know, what is your relationship with alcohol? I'm not trying to say it has to be invisible in your life. Not even present, but just saying, you, you know that. Your heart before the Lord. Where do you stand? Is this something like, man, I, I, this is an enjoyment for me. i got to have it. Got to have it. Got to have it. Uh, we need Christ. We need to be filled with his spirit. Uh, the other one, it says, not pugnacious. This is a person that's not given in strong blows. He's, he's not known to be a striker. He doesn't respond violently when people uh, disagree with him. You know, he can't be this contentious guy. They want to get physical and aggressive every time somebody says something that he disagrees with. You know, this, there's some elder that can run around the church and be the great intimidator, intimidating people. You know, they're like scared to stand up to him. And so they say, well, okay, yeah, he's elder, okay, okay. He may be wrong. He may be off. His conclusions may be wrong. But he's going to box people in order to get his way. And he says, that shouldn't be the case with you. Stand over people and wield your authority. You might even think about how your life is now. How does your wife feel about your authority in the home? Does she feel like she can bring up something and it wouldn't offend you to the point to where you're ready to, obviously you wouldn't hit her probably. I, I hope not. I'm, I'm, I'm praying that no one would hit her. Uh, but would you, the emotions and everything in your attire, be ready to just get contentious in a moment when she asks a simple question about your leadership or about the home or even your kids? How are you with them? You intimidate them? Or do you lead him with love? Thinking about that. And even the next characteristic, he says, instead of that, he must be gentle. He's got to be gentle. Not pugnacious, not ready to box everybody. Not ready to, uh, to cause a fight. But instead, he's, he's the one that is gracious and forbearing. Uh, one commentator translated this word, sweet reasonableness. 
Man, he just has a sweetness about him, and he's just reasonable. Even when there's a disagreement, there's reasonable. He's, he, he does it in accordance with reason. He's thinking about the wisdom that comes from above, that's peaceable, pure. He's not thinking about, man, I'm going to get my way. They're going to see it my way, or my way or the highway. That's not the mindset. He's gentle. Yeah, he's meek. He's uh, understanding. He's forbearing. Even when he knows that he knows that he knows, he's 100% right. And he knows that person's conclusions are wrong. He's going to be forbearing and gracious. Still stand firm, but he's going to be gentle in his approach. Peaceable. This next term, peaceable. Uh, it's really a person that uh, it's, it's amachos. Is really, we get the term macho from it. He's the opposite of that. He's not the macho man coming in just with his chest out on all the issues, tough and domineering in every way. It's the opposite of that character. This person really would, uh, he would abstain from fighting and being combative. It's peaceable. Similar to what I just mentioned there about the wisdom that we get from James. Uh, James, he talks about uh, wisdom in his letter, about it's peaceable and pure. That's how you are when you're giving God's word to God's people. It, he's about the manner and the means, as I mentioned in the beginning, not just the end product. He also needs to be free from the love of money. You see, the elder can't be financially motivated and using his ministry platform to gain resources. You know, there's a, uh, the principle behind this is that the man can't have the improper motives. And whether it's not, sometimes it's not just money, but it's uh, more f lucrative opportunities in some church versus another. And I remember talking to a guy, there's a story of a man that drove many miles from one area where his house was to a church because that church was affluent. Rose up in leadership to become an elder just so that he can get some of that resources that was the overflow of that church. He had a business and he had more business with all those people and all the resources, but that was his motivation. It wasn't to tend and care and teach and lead God's people. It was a love of money that drove him. And even as Paul mentions to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 7 through 10, he says, uh, the love of money is the root of all sorts of what? Evils. It's all sorts of evil there. It, it'll cause that to, to come up in your life, and before you know it, you're chasing it, and it's destroying you. And even in Hebrews 13.5, I love it how he gives a promise associated with love of money. He says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, this is God himself says, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you. So why do you have to go out and make your lifelong commitment pursuing resources when I'm the one that has all the divine resources and I'll never leave you? You're never going to be lacking. So he says, don't cultivate this love of money. Cultivate a love of, of God, a love of truth, a love for his church, and let him add all those other things that you need to you. Amen? That's being free from the love of money. Uh, he must manage his own household well is the next qualification there. This shows that the elder must be responsible for providing uh, the authority in his home. He must lead effectively. Yeah, I know his wife may assist in certain areas of, of the home, but the ultimate leadership falls on him, and he does it well. And, you know, we see this word well, it just looks like, well, he's just doing it at the minimum. He's doing the bare minimum. He's doing it well. It didn't say excellent. It didn't say well. But that word well, uh, to the original audience, it, it meant something that is aesthetically appealing to the eye. It was beautiful to behold. They looked at it. It was stunning. You know, so it wasn't just that he's just doing the bare minimums in the house. It's as you saw him leading his wife, caring for her, as you saw him interacting with his children, as you came in, you're part of his household, you're like, man, this is, this is stunning. I almost have that imagery of like when Queen of Bathsheba, when she came and she saw Solomon, and she was amazed that even the slaves were happy. Like Solomon is up there in leadership, and the slaves are like, man, we eating good. They serving the Lord, building, I mean, just, 
It was a beautiful thing because the wisdom of God went all the way through the house to, to even the person that was doing the, uh, the, the dirtiest task in the kingdom. He was happy because the wisdom of God was on display. And that's the person that's managing his home in such a way that people look at it and they're like, man, that is beautiful to behold. How he relates to his wife. How he, how he interacts with his kids and how his kids respond. Even see there, it's just keeping them, uh, children under control. That's a military phrase of they align themselves under his authority. They aren't saying, you know, daddy said something. He's like, no, I ain't finna do it. You know, and then he's got to wrestle with them. You know, he's got to negotiate with them. He's got to do all these things. They don't line themselves under because he's not taught them the importance of, of honoring your authority at home. is the same thing as honoring the authority with God. Lines up. Keeping the children under control. Uh, some people say, well, they have to be believers. And, you know, they look at that Titus passage. Ultimately, we don't uh, feel as though the children have to be believers, but they should be walking in the direction that shouldn't violate uh, the, the man's ability to lead in, in the, the home or the church. You see that in the, even in the next phrase. He says, uh, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? There's the correlation between the man's house and God's house. He uses an argument from the lesser to the greater. If you're not going to manage your, your home, how can you manage God's house? How can you do that? You know, people observe you in public. Are they encouraged in how you relate to your wife? Are they encouraged how you discipline your children? When you give them counsel, when you provide them direction, do people look at that and say, man, that's beautiful to behold? Well, that's what should be true of an elder. Not a new convert, he says. He doesn't need to be new. Not a neophyte. Newly planted tree is really that term. He can't be just, just uh, became a Christian, and now he's leading God's church. And the reason by that is, he says, so they won't become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. That term conceited, it's just like he don't need to be puffed up with smoke to say, man, I'm higher than where I really am. And, uh, he can mess around and fall into that condemnation that Satan had. And really, what this is saying is that if a, a, a new believer becomes an elder, he's not going to be condemned by Satan or condemned by God, but he says that he could have the temptation that could result in that. And so therefore, it's not good to put a novice up there. God, this new, new Christian, put him up in there. He's leading and giving oversight, teaching, having that enormous amount of responsibility. He's a target by Satan because Satan knows if I get that elder, I get the church. He can't handle all of that pressure, so he shouldn't be put into that office new. And even it goes against that principle that we get in Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. That pride can be swell up so fast if a new convert is in that office, so he shouldn't be new. And then the last one, it says he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into to the reproach and the snare of the devil. You know, when the church leader has a bad reputation in the community, it tarnishes the reputation of Christ. It does. It brings down, it brings shame upon his name. It tarnishes the way the church looks. It should be that people outside the community would be shocked that you were pursuing any type of leadership in this role in the office of elder. As we mentioned, it should be surprises. How are, are you a good neighbor? As you're out there working, are you a good co-worker? Uh, do people that know you outside of the church think highly of you? Enough to where there's godly influence in their life. Well, see, these are the characteristics that God would have uh, for the man who is to step into that office of the overseer. But I would commend to you, brothers, these are characteristics that God wants to be part of your life. I pray that you would assess your life in light of what we've just heard through these principles. Let the conviction of the Holy Spirit in this word sink deep into your thinking. To say, man, that's an area that I need to give attention to. I don't need to just be saying, that's the elder's role and not mine. 
I need to be saying right there, Lord, I'm struggling in this particular area. Grant grace and help me so that I can be more like Christ. And then for this, I, I would just say, if the Lord is tugging your heart, aim for that, that area. As we just saw, aspiration. Aim for the office of, of elder. Say, Lord, I pray that even if it's not this year, next year, I want to be in a position to where I can pursue that office. And that it would be just, you know, the grace of God in my life and fulfillment to look more like Christ and help others to do the same in the highest office in the church and in the land. And again, like I said, every marker in there, with the exception of able to teach, is the mark of every Christian. Just pursue those. If you don't have the aspiration of the office, at least have the aspiration to the life. And that's what we just saw on display is a life. Life of a godly man that is in the household of God giving oversight. Uh, identify those characteristics that should be avoided. Look at those that should be affirmed. And don't just wait, you know, to submit an elder application and then say, oh, now these things are going to start in my life. You know, we look around and see, do we, do we see elder fruit in men's life now? Do we see fruit of a man caring, teaching, shepherding, leading, loving people, meeting new folks, inviting them in the home, strengthening the body? Those are the men that we're looking at uh, to raise up so that God would have them be elders in the future. Now let me pray and give God praise on this teaching that we had, and, and then I'll invite Pastor Adam up to come and give us some more words. Lord, we thank you for your goodness in our life, and thank you for this truth, and ask that you would just help us to, uh, to really even be sober-minded as we receive them. Understand what your expectations and of the elder is, and I pray also that you would help us to see those characteristics that should be on display in our life. Uh, we know that the only way that we can do that is having a genuine relationship with Christ, having repented, having pursued his righteousness, and, um, and having given him all of our sin at that great exchange, and then having a desire to grow up in the grace that you supply day by day, uh, looking more like the man of God that you have desired in this household, and then having a conviction that we wanted to replicate that in the life of this church. And so be honored in all the teaching and the hearing and the application of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.